Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part four of our series on throwing behavior. Now, in previous parts, we focused mainly on non-human animals. We've looked at uh, alleged throwing behaviors in octopuses, in uh, in elephants, in the mongoose. Uh, we definitely had a digression about dogs with Airbud in the previous episode, but also in the previous episode. We ended up talking about the evolution of the human capacity for throwing, uh, which we are particularly apt at. Humans are, are very good at throwing, especially compared to our nearest primate relatives. So like a chimpanzee may be on average three or four times stronger than a human, but a human, even without specialized training, can generally throw a lot more forcefully and a lot better than a chimpanzee can. So why are we so specialized for throwing? Well, we took a look at, at uh, some, some evolutionary hypotheses about where our capacity for throwing comes from. But there was another thing that I came across while researching this subject that I did not get into in the uh, previous episode, and I wanted to come back to it here because I found it really interesting. And this is the idea of what if the evolution of throwing was somehow a necessary precursor for the evolution of probably the most distinctly human trait, language? Hmm. So not just that humans are good at throwing and good at language, but that there is actually a, a neurobiological link between the two. One comes from the other. Uh, so to look at this uh, uh, question, I wanted to refer to a paper by William D. Hopkins, Jamie L. Russell, and Jennifer A. Schaefer, published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences, published in 2012, called The Neural and Cognitive Correlates of Aimed Throwing in Chimpanzees, a Magnetic Resonance Image and Behavioral Study on a Unique Form of Social Tool Use. So um, to begin, they cover some of the same ground we did in the previous episode, uh, you know, how unusual human throwing behavior is in a way. And despite all the interesting examples we've discussed in these episodes of animals throwing things for various reasons, whether trained by humans or just doing it as part of their natural instinctual behaviors, um, the authors here argue that in general, throwing remains unsystematic in their words in other animals. And I think this is fair. No other animal practices uh, the kind of generalized, skillful, habitual throwing that we do, certainly not without training by humans. Yeah, as we discussed in the previous episode, it goes way back in human behavior. And it's something that even today, with all our other tools and ways of doing things at a distance, we still engage in throwing. Uh, we, we, I think in the very first episode, we discussed that sort of, um, at least in my case, uh, 
the strange pull to need to throw a ball with my son when he was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though you know, we're not a baseball or softball family, but it was just kind of this thing that I guess was like nostalgic in the culture, but also very satisfying to do. Mm-hmm. And something that even if you're not very practiced at, you can do with some, or at least I found that I could do with some degree of precision, um, the, despite being very rusty at the whole softball, baseball thing. I totally sympathize with you there. I mean, I, I think neither of us are really sports guys. I, I don't really want rules. I don't really want teams, but I do want ball. Mm-hmm. Or Frisbee. Frisbee, uh, just as good, in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, there's also there's there's a lot more throwing that goes on too. like it, uh, how often do we find ourselves across the room from someone? We request something and they give it a toss. They throw it to us and you want to be able to catch it for various reasons. Um, yeah. And then that's without even getting into the various sports that even if we don't engage in, we may watch. And the throwing of balls is often an essential part or at least one aspect of a given sport. Right. Uh, but of course, apart from these uh, recreational concerns, you know, throwing has been uh, crucial to the survival of our ancestors. That seems pretty clear. And in the last episode, we talked about arguments from evolutionary anthropology that throwing was positively selected for in human ancestors uh, and the bodies of hominin species like Homo erectus show anatomical changes that seem to favor forceful overhand throwing. Um I remember those changes, uh, they're like changes in the shoulder and the waist and the upper arm, all of which mm-hmm. combine to allow for a more substantial wind up, sort of a pulling back of tension of the, of the biomechanical bowstring to be released uh, rapidly during the throw. And we also talked about the argument that these changes appear to coincide with evidence of meat becoming a bigger part of the diet of these hominins, showing that throwing uh, was likely useful for uh, obtaining food either through power scavenging, like driving predators away from a kill in order to take the meat for yourself, or direct hunting, uh, and either way increasing the availability of food energy. Now, one very interesting thing about the adaptation for throwing is that it implies not only changes in the muscles and the skeletal system. Of course, you know, you can see all those changes around the scapula and the shoulder blade, changes in the waist, the arm, and so forth. But it also implies changes in cognition. An animal that can throw objects sourced from the environment is showing a specialized way of thinking and not just a specialized way of moving. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, as uh, one example, the authors reference a uh, a specific captive chimpanzee who came up in the last episode. Rob, you remember the, the story of Santino, the chimpanzee mm-hmm. who was in a zoo in, I believe, Sweden, was it? I believe so, yes. Yeah. R.I.P. Santino. Yeah, poor Santino. The authors write that Santino, uh, who I guess was alive at the time this paper was written, quote, hides rocks out of sight of the care staff waiting to reveal and throw them at approaching visitors at the most opportune time. Evidence of planning comes from the observation that Santino searches for the rocks from a moat inside the enclosure prior to the arrival of the care staff and the visitors and caches the rocks out of sight only to pull them out when the visitors arrive. That is a crafty chimp, and that is that is forethought. Mm-hmm. Adding to this, the authors uh, uh, throw in their own observations of, of similar pre-planning behavior in chimpanzees in two other research environments. And they argued that the throwing, quote, though often agonistic in function and consequence, agonistic meaning a sort of confrontational, uh, aggressive behavior, uh, is not part of the ape's display behavior. Indeed, most instances of aimed throwing that we have observed occur without any accompanying display behavior, such as piloerection, hooting, and charging, further suggesting an element of planning on the part of the individual ape. Uh, So I think that's interesting, too, if you understand what they're saying there, that there is a sort of standard display behavior algorithm, like when an ape is doing an agonistic display when trying to be dominant and aggressive and maybe scare you off. Mm Mm-hmm. It includes all of these sub-features, like the piloerection, meaning the bristling of body hair, hair stands on end, uh, hooting, charging back and forth, uh, all that stuff. And they say that when the apes throw stuff at people, they do it without all of these other features of a typical instinctual display. Another way that throwing is different from most other forms of tool use in apes, uh, the most commonly observed types of tool use by wild chimpanzees are are all things where the tool is used to extract 
otherwise unreachable food, often like from a hole or enclosure of some kind, and then is eaten immediately. So examples here would be cracking of nuts with with stones, like nut cracking is a, an example of ape tool use, but also termite fishing with sticks, ant dipping, and so forth. All of these give rise to an immediate food reward for executing the behavior, meaning that these behaviors are subject to regular operant conditioning rules. Uh, you know, if, if a behavior leads to an immediate food reward, an animal can learn to repeat basically any arbitrary set of actions. So, you know, a chimpanzee gets delicious termites every time it, uh, of course, if it if it dips for them, that's one thing. But maybe if it stands on one foot and gets termites every time, it may learn to stand on one foot to get the meat. Yeah, and we see this reflected in, in so many um, uh, experiments involving animals over the years. You know, can can you get uh, an animal to manipulate some sort of technological gadget in order to get a food reward? Yeah, pressing a button or something that would have no relevance in the natural environment. Mm-hmm. So other tool use behaviors could easily be learned and reinforced uh, through through this kind of conditioning, but throwing, as practiced by apes, does not lead to an immediate food reward. In fact, it rarely, if ever, leads to a food reward at all. The authors write, quote, what appears to be the main reward for throwing is the simple ability to control or manipulate the behavior of the targeted individual, ape or human, which, though you could consider it a goal, I mean, that is much more complicated and ambiguous than a direct food reward. Yeah, because it's not like the ape in this scenario is throwing the rock, hitting the human, and then by hitting the human, they drop an apple or something. Right, yeah. Yeah. Now, from here, the authors go on to discuss the the underappreciated complexity of throwing. We also talked about this at length in the previous episode. But, you know, suffice to say, forceful, precise overhand throwing is an extremely demanding task, not only for the muscles, but for the brain, uh, requiring split-second coordination of perceptual judgments, all kinds of things. You know, how far away is the target? Is it moving? In what direction and how fast? What are the physical properties of the projectile and so forth? But then the other thing is the sequential motor control. To throw an object, you have to precisely time a rapid sequence of muscular movements. And uh, other authors have previously suggested that, quote, the increased selection for neural synchrony of rapid muscular sequencing routines associated with actions such as throwing are similar to the motor programming demands of language and speech and therefore engage similar neural systems, notably Broca's area. Mm-hmm. In other words, there are similarities between what the brain is doing and what parts of the brain are being used to coordinate a throw and to process language and perform speech. And one idea that gets wrapped up in this is the the role of brain lateralization, segmenting of brain processes to one hemisphere or side of the brain or the other. So in cultures where throwing behavior has been studied, the authors say the majority of people pretty much always prefer to throw with the right hand. Uh, Studies in chimpanzees also show a bias toward right-handedness for throwing. And these right-hand preferences suggest left hemisphere dominance in the brain in these majorities of both populations. Because when it comes to controlling the body's movements, of course, you know, the hemispheres are are flipped. Generally, the left hemisphere links to the right hand, the right hemisphere to the left, and so forth. Some researchers have pointed this out in the context of uh, the fact that the left hemisphere also contains the brain regions, notably Broca's area, that dominate the production of speech. Broca's area is also known as the motor speech area. And one researcher who has focused on this is the American neurophysiologist William H. Calvin, who was or uh, actually I think maybe still is a professor at the University of Washington at Seattle. Uh, who, observing that 89% of people prefer to throw with the right arm, Calvin uh, hypothesized that the left hemisphere's capacity for language may have actually evolved from a pre-existing adaptation for right-handed throwing. Uh, He apparently published a, a book that contained this hypothesis in 1983. It was called The Throwing Madonna. Oh, didn't they adapted this into the film, um, A League of Their Own, right? Was Madonna in that? I believe so. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Was she the pitcher in the movie? Uh, oh, I don't remember. But, I mean, surely she threw a ball at least once. I mean, there's a lot of, of, of throwing in baseball. Yeah, you, you throw no matter what position you are. I guess yeah. the pitcher throws the most. There's no crying in baseball, but there's throwing in baseball. There's a lot. That much I remember from the film. Okay, so Madonna was definitely throwing no matter what position she played. Um, no, but it unfortunately did not become the basis of the movie as far as I know. Instead, it was a place where Calvin laid out an interesting uh, sort of story, a, a possible series of developments that could have led to the development of language via the stepping stone of, uh, uh, of capacity for throwing. So it, the story goes like this. Lateralization evolved for one-handed throwing with the right hand specifically so that parents, typically mothers, could cradle an infant on their left side and then they'd be free to throw with the right hand if they needed to. So, I mean, obviously things like this are hard to prove for sure, but it, that is an interesting idea because I started thinking about how I, I recently became a father and without thinking about it at all, I pretty much always, when I hold my baby, hold her on, on the left side of, of my torso. And so mm -hmm. if she, like, falls asleep against me, her head is going to be on the left side of my chest, and uh, that from my point of view, which is also the side where the heartbeat is closer. I never planned it that way. That, that just sort of happened. And uh, I was talking to uh, my wife, and she said, yeah, most often she, she's on the left side there too. So I don't know. That's kind of interesting. I mean, it could be totally unrelated, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would always scoop up on the left side as well. My son is now, I think, finally too big for me to, to do that without uh, seriously injuring myself. But yes. <laughs> and I guess at a certain point, you become less desiring of the heartbeat sound that like maybe loses some of the power it has over over really young infants. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it, it varies from from child to child. Depends on how big they get. <laughs> and at what point they want that distance. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. 
No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, so it's, it's hard to know for sure if the need to scoop a child and hold them on the left side of the body close to the heartbeat is the real reason driving brain lateralization. Um, I find it more compelling than some other uh, hypotheses that seem to be uh, on offer at the time. One that cited, I, I was reading a review of this book by Calvin that cited a previous hypothesis that right-handedness evolved because um, men in battle, I guess prehistoric battle, needed to like hold a, a shield above their above their heart on the left side. And I was like, I right, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> this this uh, discussion reminds me of a painting, uh, an 1888 painting that I hadn't thought of in a bit. I believe what is this? Uh, the title of this piece is Two Mothers" by uh, Leon Maxime of, of Favre. Um, it's uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's F A I V R E. But it's a pretty uh, stunning piece in which we see this um, vision of a of a prehistoric mother with, with very modern uh, touches to it. Uh, but she's standing here in some sort of a, uh, you know, a, a hide garment, and she has this heavy-looking infant in her left arm. And then there's another child sort of hanging on to her left arm. In her right hand, she has... Uh, looks like some sort of a, a stone weapon, uh, like a, 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 a wooden wooden haft with a with a stone blade, some sort of like you know a, a primitive axe or club, mm-hmm. and she's staring back into the shadows behind her with this kind of like cave environment, and there's clearly an animal lurking there, an animal emerging from the shadows. And I think this is supposed to be the other mother, the mother that is hunting her. And I have no idea if this uh, this, uh, this piece has, has any connection to what we're talking about here. But it is interesting that we do see left arm cradling children, right arm brandishing a weapon to protect those children against some threat. It is a kind of beautiful painting, yeah. Yeah, her hair is perfect too. Like she's real. This mom's really got it together. Perfect hair, protecting the children, ready to brain a panther with some sort of a stone weapon. Anyway, whatever the cause of the the right hand lateralization for uh, sequential motor control in in throwing, uh, the the hypothesis goes on from here to suggest that sequential motor control regions that made us so good at at Uh, tossing a stone with one hand, were eventually commandeered by selection pressure for communication and shifted to a different kind of sequential motor control, which was language production. Now, when we think of language production, we think of speech, and that that could be the case. Uh, I think Calvin argued for a transitional stage where the original language was more gesture-based, like gesturing with the hands, maybe. Mm. which would have then transitioned into speech production with the mouth. Again, like many things here, uh, that's not something we know for sure. So we're in very speculative territory, but I do find this really interesting. So again, if there's anything to this story, it would go that for some reason, there is an original right-hand, left-brain motor lateralization for the majority of the population for throwing objects. Human ancestors get really good at throwing with that one hand, maybe cradling a baby in the other arm or doing something else. And then you could argue that the lateralization for precise sequential motor activity in the left brain uh, to power throwing eventually provides the neurological scaffolding for the left brain's capacity for language and speech. Uh, Now, what was the actual experiment in this uh, study? Well, it was looking at our closest primate relatives to see if they could provide any insight on what might have been going on in the brains of very distant human ancestors. So they were looking at chimpanzees. Now, again, chimpanzees don't throw nearly as well or as often as we do, but some throw sometimes. So what, if anything, is different 
in the brains of chimpanzees that reliably throw versus those that don't. Specifically, the authors looked at the ratio of two different types of brain tissue, white matter and gray matter, in the areas of chimpanzee brains that would be most similar to the areas of the human brain involved in motor control for throwing and for speech. And this would be, quote, the homologue to Broca's area. Remember, again, Broca's area is involved in speech production in humans. And then they also say, as well as the motor hand area of the precentral gyrus, termed the knob, K-N-O-B. And what they found was that in both of these areas, in the chimpanzee equivalent of Broca's area and in the knob, the ratio of white matter to gray matter was higher in chimpanzees that throw versus those that don't. Also, quote, We further found that asymmetries in white matter within both brain regions were larger in the hemisphere contralateral to the chimpanzee's preferred throwing hand. So what they're saying is it's it's not just that the ratio of white matter was higher in these regions on both sides of the brain. It's that whichever hand the chimpanzee liked to throw with, those particular regions had a higher proportion of white matter on the opposite side of the brain. Hmm. Also, they assessed the chimpanzees in this study with what is called a primate cognition test battery, or PCTB, which uh, is, uh, you know, sort of an SAT for for chimpanzees. It's standard tests on all kinds of mental abilities, you know, uh, uh, tons of things, spatial memory, uh, causality inference, tool property recognition, gaze following, and so forth. And they were looking at, well, are there any differences between apes that throw and apes that don't throw? And out of this entire test battery, generally not. Uh, Generally, there were no cognitive differences, except in one area. There was only one aptitude where there was a significant difference. And it was that researchers found chimpanzees that were more inclined to throw were also better at social communication. Hmm. So the authors write, quote, these results suggest that chimpanzees that have learned to throw have developed greater cortical connectivity, uh, that's correlating with the white matter, between the primary motor cortex and the Broca's area homologue. It is suggested that during hominin evolution, after the split between lines leading to chimpanzees and humans, there was intense selection on increased motor skills associated with throwing and that this potentially formed the foundation for left hemisphere specialization associated with language and speech found in modern humans. So this is another case where uh, I think this is far from proven. We would need much more robust evidence before you could endorse this specific evolutionary story as uh, as likely. But I, I find this very intriguing, and it does seem possible to me that the capacity for throwing gave rise to the capacity for language. Hmm. So ape throws the bone, the bone spins around, the bone becomes a space station, <laughs> just as Kubrick uh, promised us. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Uh, I want to get back into this idea of early humans, especially throwing stones as weapons and throwing other things as weapons. Uh, you know, as we discussed in the last episode, we, we talked about some of the ideas concerning the development of ranged weapon technology in prehistoric humans, this idea that what first begins as a way of engaging in agonistic communication could transform into just a way of physically sending a message to another species via projectile. But then eventually that begins to get into this way to manipulate their behavior at range, especially in the case of power scavenging. And ultimately, it could be used as a way to hunt prey animals. Right. And as we were actually recording that episode, my mind kept turning to these images of some sort of prehistoric warfare scenario in which some, you know, entirely too Kubricky prehistoric people were employing various weapons and in kind of pro- also probably a slightly too tabletop war game manner where you have, you know, units of bone wielding beaters moving forward to engage in some melee attacks. And then maybe you have some units of rock throwers behind them. Um, and, you know, this, this felt kind of silly in my head, maybe even a little Gary Larson Uh, esque in my head, a little far side. Uh, But uh, then I started looking into it more because, of course, you know, rock throwers were an important part of uh, of our history. And when you start looking into the history of not only ranged weaponry, but hand-thrown ranged weaponry, uh, it gets pretty fascinating. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the main things that's striking is rediscovering how potent to force simple thrown objects are, even in an era where, where uh, powered uh, projectile technology like bows or crossbows or even guns exist. When you think of, oh, somebody's throwing rocks, there at least can be this sort of feeling that it's uh, like a juvenile sort of thing, that it's primitive, that it's a, a nuisance. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I think most of us realize that it's also quite dangerous. Nobody wants to be hit in the head with a thrown rock. Uh, a, a well-aimed thrown rock can, of course, be deadly. True. And on top of that, a volley of thrown rocks from multiple assailants uh, even more dangerous. And of course, we see this reflected in the use of stoning as a form of execution from ancient times through through modern times. But I didn't want to dwell so much on that because that's a more depressing subject matter. Uh, but I wanted to focus more on hand-thrown stones and weapons in a hunting and warfare context. Okay. So I think for many of us, and this was me until just the other day, we tend to think of ranged weapons as this steady ascent out of the Stone Age. So sure, we threw stones at things, then, and we greatly increased our ability to strategically employ those thrown stones. But then we got why, and then of course we probably got wiser about how we selected stones. Granted, but then eventually we're going to level up, right? You're going to upgrade to using something like a sling, uh, a spear, a spear thrower, uh, a bow and arrow, a crossbow, etc., all the way up through the modern era. And it's I think it's easy to think of this as a linear progression or like a video game skill tree, a situation where you could you're yelling at the screen, hey, don't equip the throwing rock, you fool. You have a spear now. Equip the spear. Yes, yes. Video game logic per pervades yeah. our, our thoughts in every way. <laughs> yeah. But of course, that, this is not exactly how things pan out for a number of reasons. Speaking broadly in terms of just weaponry in general, uh, materials are, are one factor, but in, and we've discussed that on the show before. Uh, but another huge factor to consider is that Humans are such great natural throwers, as we've been discussing, and it's such a big part of the weapon history that there just may not be a good reason to completely abandon the hand-thrown stone. Right. I mean, you, you can imagine cases where people are having great success with, with just hand-thrown stones, and, and why, why fix what's not broken? Yeah, and then if something also becomes a part of culture, becomes a part of a martial art, um, and a weapon tradition, then uh, there's this added incentive to keep it around. So uh, I started looking into some examples from um, Polynesian weaponry and martial arts. The first thing I ran across was an interesting mention in The Coming of the Maori uh, Weapons, a 1949 text by New Zealand anthropologist and Dr. Te Rangi Roa, who lived 1877 through 1951. In discussing the prevalence for spears and clubs in Polynesian history, he also discusses the, the sling as a primary ranged weapon along with the spear. And then he shares the following, quote, stones were also thrown by hand and early European voyagers have reported this form of attack more than the use of the sling. The bow and arrow, while present in some groups, was used for sport, but not as a weapon of war. In Samoa, it was used to shoot pigeons, in Hawaii to shoot rats, and in the Society Islands, it was a chiefly sport in which archers clad in special costumes shot for distance from raised stone platforms. Now, obviously, this is an older source here, but instantly reading this, you realize, well, if this is true, it raises interesting possibilities about the dependability of thrown stones as weaponry, even as other technologies come online. Right. So you could have the technology of a bow, but still prefer hand-thrown stones for some utilities. Yeah. And uh, it, the advantages of the bow, of course, are well documented. You know, none of this, none of this that we're getting into is going to be a statement that along the lines of, well, actually, a thrown rock is better than a, a high-powered bow or anything like that. But um, and, and it's true that the use of the bow was widespread, not only in ancient armies, but among hunter gatherers. But as Thomas Hewlett points out in a section on ranged weaponry in the, the book, 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World, not all hunter gatherers use the bow and arrow. He mentions uh, Australian Aborigines as an example of a people who did not, uh, despite some of them surely being aware of the technology via contact with the Torres Strait Islanders who used bows, uh, they were still people that, that that uh, retained the use of ranged weaponry that depended on, on hand-thrown objects. And we'll come back to the most famous uh, classification of hand-thrown objects that they used in a bit. 
But but where I really uh, got fascinated with all of this was uh, was a paper from 2011. This was published in the Journal of the Polynesian Society by Barbara Isaac and Gwineria Isaac, titled "Unexpected Trajectories: A History of Nuean Throwing Stones." The authors here describe the war stones of Nuwe. Nuwe is an island that's. Um, 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers northeast of New Zealand. And when Captain James Cook visited the island in 1774, he dubbed it the Savage Island, uh, which may have had something to do with their consumption of uh, the native banana species, which uh, I understand had like a, a red peel and an orangish interior, and if uh, in the teeth or rubbed on the body might look like blood. But this also re- clearly reflects Cook's general attitude towards indigenous peoples as well. But uh, he also certainly seemed to have encountered some difficulty in landing on New Way. Uh, it's apparently difficult to land on the island anyway due to the surrounding coral reefs, but the people of New Way were also hostile to his landing attempts. And his naturalist, the naturalist on, on this particular voyage, Anders Sparman, was injured by a thrown stone. I believe it got him in the arm. Mm-hmm. The new way here, they were uh, they were not just picking up random stones and throwing them either. Uh, this is where it gets really fascinating. They had a highly refined approach to the use of hand-thrown ranged stone weaponry. According to Isaac and Isaac, the warriors were reported at the time to each have spears on their person, to have a sling, and also have a pouch of stones for throwing. But throwing stones and sling launch stones were, were not uncommon among other peoples who were encountered on islands uh, from this vast region. So comparatively, there wasn't much Western commentary on these throwing stones. Uh, but the throwing stones of, of Nue, according to Isaac and Isaac, were quite singular. And much of it would come out later through indigenous recollections, the work of later anthropologists and missionaries as well as later analysis of stones that were subsequently taken off the island after Western contact. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So these war stones, uh, yeah, the, the crazy thing about them is that, again, these are not just stones that were picked up or even stones that were sort of painstakingly collected in the way that one might uh, you know, scour the, the rocks uh, by a stream to find the best rocks for skipping. No, these were crafted items made of, uh, I think, predominantly limestone crafted items. So you might think of this as more like an arrow or an axe head or something, but it is a stone for throwing with the hand. Right, right. The the, the people here would harvest the stone apparently from stalactites and, st- and stalagmites in naturally occurring caves uh, on the island and then wear them down in the into the desired shape by working them over with other pieces of stone or with pieces of coral. So we're talking considerable manufacturing effort going into these. Uh, again, they're, they're not just uh, picked up off the ground. They're not even um, scavenged from the ground. They are manufactured from materials that are harvested. They tended to weigh around three to four pounds each, and they were largely spherical in shape. Um, they were often compared to small cannonballs by, uh, by Western commentators. Uh, but the difference is that they were elongated a little bit on the two opposing ends. You can look up pictures of these uh, online, and they, uh, to, to me, if I was to compare them to a, a naturally occurring um, object, I would say they kind of look like, like well-crafted stone lemons or limes. I was going to say lemon, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they have that, or I guess you could almost say they don't really look like a football, but they have, I guess, a slightly football-esque shape, or they remind me of certain, like, malformed, or not malformed, but sort of slightly unrealistic toy footballs you might have seen if you were a child, uh, you know, back in the 80s or something. Sorry, I was just briefly amused by the concept of a toy football. <laughs> yeah, well... Well, you have a, the functional football. This is for serious business for the, yes. the, the sport of American football, and then you have uh, you have something that's that's less serious. This is a football. This is not for playing with. <laughs> so uh, you did have Western observers, though, that were figuring a lot of this out. That these war stones were indeed crafted items. That they were made out of limestone. Uh, that people would harvest uh, the stone from against stalactites and stalagmites. And uh, the, there's some really uh, interesting takes on this that are reported in this, uh, this paper. Uh, in 1868, missionary Thomas Powell wrote that, quote, This fact is remarkable as an indication of thought and design natural to this people. For it is not probable that the first inhabitants brought the ideas with them. But they found this limestone in the caves, saw the use to which it might be put, and designed the shape. It is therefore original on their part, and in this particular, they anticipated the European science of the recent century. Now, they don't note what uh, he was referring to here on the European science thing. Perhaps I'm thinking maybe airships? I'm not sure. They kind of have an airship look to them, I guess. Hmm. Now, on the, the limestone front, uh, 19th and 20th century anthropologists described other war stones that were sometimes used that might have been made of other materials, one of, um, um, of basalt, one of coral, for example. Yeah, you definitely have examples of like a black um, a stone, a black war stone. But limestone seems to be the primary material. They were highly prized and were used exclusively for conflict. Um, and, and there was apparently a lot of conflict on the on the island. Uh, even, you know, this is before there were any Westerners even. And part of it had to do with, uh, you know, droughts would occur and there was a lot of uh, skirmishing for available resources. Hmm. But they didn't hunt with them, apparently. So birds were hunted with 
what are referred to as bird bows in this paper, and fish were hunted with nets. So these these were exclusively for dealing with human threats or perceived human threats. Warriors would carry them in bags or on belts. And if they ran out of ammo, it's mentioned that they would naturally make use of stones from the ground as well. So they weren't above, you know, reaching down and grabbing whatever was available and throwing that uh, after your special stones were extinguished. And then, of course, after a skirmish or battle, uh, you would hopefully be able to go back and pick up your your ammo, uh, retrieve them, because uh, 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 other sources mentioned that they often they had names, they had histories, histories of violence, and so these uh, these particular stones would kind of resonate with importance to the individual who wielded it. Hmm. So it, it's interesting that if the stones uh, are you know they're they're manufactured with care and they are used specifically for human conflict instead of hunting. Uh, I mean, it makes me think about them them having, I don't know, some kind of special like communicative or signaling power in addition to their uh, ability to hit and hurt someone. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, here, here's another great quote. This one is referenced in the paper as well from anthropologist Edwin Loeb, who uh, wrote the following about the, yeah, the importance of the stones to the individuals. Quote, the fighting stones all had special names and they were put in a kapha or girdle, which was uh, plated like a mat. The kapha was about six to seven inches wide and was customarily four fathoms in length. The third night before the war arrived, they wound the kapha around their stomachs and slept in this manner during the night, neither eating or drinking. So in this paper, the the uh, uh, the authors here they they point out that um, these Nuwayan stones, these war stones, um, th- there were songs about them, um, and part of uh, their importance also may have had to do with the fact that they were products of the caves, which were sacred sites with uh, seems like connections to the afterlife. And of course, this matches up with the way caves were viewed uh, by uh, peoples in other parts of the world as well. The stones were used in ambush attacks, in skirmishes, but also sometimes in fights to the death uh, would occur. But it seems like a lot of these battles, based on some of the commentaries, uh, may not have been typically that lethal. Uh, So, yeah, this does line up with this idea of communication. It's not necessarily about going out and absolutely murdering the competition, but driving them away from resources that you're looking to control. Hmm. And in the paper, the authors also mostly speculate on accuracy here. And in part of this was based on accounts of other throwing techniques by other advanced stone or club throwing groups. But they speculate that high accuracy was likely within 20 yards or 18 meters, roughly. Uh, but greater distance accuracy was certainly possible. And I think this makes sense when you consider the the likely scenarios in which these stones are being used. Uh, So, uh, yeah, any kind of uh, sort of tabletop gaming scenario uh, uh, that you have in your mind should probably set aside. It sounds like most of these these encounters, these battles would have involved like one individual against another individual or one small group against another. It seems like skirmishes and small ambushes were sort of the the typical uh, encounter context for their use. Hmm. So anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating paper. Uh, it's uh, available on uh, on JSTOR if anyone wants to read more. Uh, they, they really get in depth about the history of it and various, uh, uh, mostly Western commentators who are looking at it, and also how these uh, how the use of the stones was um, uh, you know disappeared, and then the stones went out uh, throughout the world, and then were uh, to certain degrees brought back or studied. Now, this was certainly the most to me, anyway, remarkable account of stone throwing I came across, uh, but not the only account of specialized throwing stones. I ran across the work of Guy uh, Stiebel uh, talking about uh, archaeology finds in Jerusalem and the accumulated weapons and ammo that they were finding. Uh, this was a, a paper that came out in 2013. This is from a chapter titled Military Equipment in a, uh, a larger collection of papers titled Jerusalem Excavations in the um, Tyropian Valley. And yeah, so, so there's, a, there's a lot of discussion of things like you know, things you would expect to find, uh, you know, sling stones and so forth, uh, other types of projectiles. Uh, but then there is an interesting part where he mentions, uh, he, he starts talking about what may have been stones 
that were expressly uh, collected and even crafted for throwing. Quote, three flint balls have a single flat face, unlike weights or grinding stones that frequently exhibit multiple flat surfaces. They were ideal for heaping on top of battlements, as modern experiments have demonstrated. In light of parallels from both Palestine and the Roman West, it appears that the use of hand-thrown stones was much more prevalent than has been previously appreciated in modern scholarship. Oh, that's interesting. The single flat face. So that would be a stone that was modified or selected to have a single flat face in order to make it easier to stack in a pile and so it wouldn't roll away. Yeah, yeah. For use on battlements, which I guess also the other side of that is not only do you not want your ammo to roll away, you don't want it to roll off the battlements with, with uh, you know, fatal gravity assist uh, potentially um, if you're not meaning to drop it. Um uh, yeah, it, it, I'd, I'd never, I've never thought about this before. Um, I mean, I've certainly researched siege scenarios before, where it's it's very obvious that if you have the advantage of battlements, there's a great deal you can do without the need for uh, the power of a bow. You can just drop things on people underneath, and it was and dropping things on your besiegers was a was a a, a favorite tactic. Be that you could drop rocks, you could drop uh, various burning things, oils, etc. Uh, all manner of things, and, and again, with, with lethal intensity. Uh, but this idea of, of not just having stones, but stones that had been to some degree altered or manufactured or crafted in order to just stack up there so they're ready to go, but they're also not rolling out of, out of, uh, out of sight and posing a danger uh, to anyone who might just, say, be working beneath. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there are also several interesting cases, uh, probably many, many more uh, on top of what I'm going to highlight here, of hand-thrown clubs and throwing sticks. So, you know, we've been talking about throwing rocks, but of course, throwing sticks is just sort of the, the other side of the equation here. And you find examples of these traditions just throughout the world on various continents. Um, the throwing stick was used as a hunting tool by prehistoric peoples, and we have examples of these going back at least some 300,000 years. Uh, uh, one of the problems that, and this is something that's pointed out in a uh, paper I was looking at by Conrad et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, is that a throwing stick is generally a wooden stick, and therefore it's not always going to survive uh, to become an artifact that can be studied and interpreted um, you know, hundreds of thousands of years later. Mm-hmm. But the practice of hunting with thrown sticks certainly survived. Uh, the ancient Egyptians retained a practice of hunting with throwing sticks, and we see this uh, commemorated uh, both in their hieroglyphics, but also in, um, in art. Uh, I included a, an image for you to look at here, Joe, where you see an individual um, clearly out uh, by the waterside. There are all these birds around, and in one hand, the individual is holding up this, this throwing stick. And this is sort of a um, an, an end-weighted club of sorts that can be thrown. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we, we also see the use of this in other cultures as well. The Hopi tribes people of North America also used a type of hunting stick, sometimes referred to as a rabbit stick, named for the prey you would go after with this, uh, with this tool, with this weapon. Mm-hmm. Throwing clubs, throwing sticks were also used in, uh, in warfare scenarios and also in, uh, in, in war-related ceremonies and, uh, and symbolism. Uh, Fiji Islanders used beautiful and ceremonial throwing war clubs. Uh, these were called uh, ulas, and you can look up examples of these. Some key African traditions of throwing clubs are notable as well, including the East African rungu as well as the, uh, the knob carry of uh, southern and eastern Africa. And these were used for hunting and war, but also became highly symbolic social signifiers as well. Yeah. But I feel like the idea of the thrown blunt weapon, the throwing club, is something that is often, uh, I guess, glossed over in, in, uh, at least in the Western mindset. Uh, you know, just again, coming back as always to things like Dungeons and Dragons, where we, we wrap uh, all these fantasy scenarios around uh, the use of ranged and melee weaponry. Um, it's, it's easy to dismiss the idea that, yeah, the, the, the club also is a potential ranged weapon. Uh, though, of course, I think Dungeons and Dragons does at least have a boomerang in it. Um, and the boomerang is probably the most famous and uh, I guess the most exceptional of the, the throne clubs uh, that, that humans have developed over the ages. The boomerang is, uh, is exceptional because it's, it's still essentially a throne club that kills or injures via blunt force. But it is also crafted to spin in just uh, the right way and, and by virtue of its shape uh, to generate an, an aerofoil, which then uh, increases the distance that it can be thrown. So it's not only, you know, thrown, but it also begins to take on flight uh, in, a, in a fascinating manner. Yeah, I remember being fascinated by the boomerang as, as far back as when I was a little kid. Yeah. And uh, according to, to Thomas Hewlett, uh, we run into the wooden artifact problem again with boomerangs, but convincing boomerangs have been discovered as old as 10,000 years. Uh, so they, they've, they've been around for quite a while. There are returning boomerangs and there are non-returning boomerangs. Um, Non-returning boomerangs were primarily weapons, while returning boomerangs were, I think, more in the recreational and symbolic and mythological sphere of things, um, but could also be used, apparently, in, in hunting scenarios as some sort of a decoy uh, for, I think, birds of prey, but also as a means of frightening intended bird prey. So they weren't without um, functional uses. And there are a lot of things similar to these boomerangs that we find in other cultures as well. Like the Tamil people had a kind of non-returning boomerang of their own called a valari. And you can look up uh, various images of this as well. 
has a slight boomerang shape, kind of a tusk-like shape. Mm, yeah. Now, going back to Thomas Hewlett here, he points out that, broadly speaking, the evolution of ranged weaponry was initially uh, uh, an evolution that had a lot to do with range. Thrown weapons greatly increased the range at which human beings uh, may inflict harm, but then additional throwing technologies extend that range. And this, of course, increases what we can do with them from a hunting standpoint, but also provides advantages over other human adversaries, at least under the right conditions. But I think these examples show that it's not just a matter of abandoning the use of hand-thrown projectiles. We retain the physical abilities as well as the basic skill sets. And we see this reflected in our sports as well as our weapon cultures. Hand-thrown weapon traditions clearly survive the advent of other ranged weapon technologies and in many cases retained important cultural values as well. And... There's one final wrinkle here, too, that I, I almost completely blanked on. I almost didn't have anything about this in the notes. But then I, of course, remembered, well, as we enter into the age of explosives, hand-thrown weaponry remains important in the form of hand grenades. The more common variety of grenade is, of course, made to be thrown by hand, much like a throwing stone. It more or less fits in the human palm. Though we also have the example of the German stick hand grenade that was used in the First and Second World Wars and I think adopted by uh, some other groups as well during this period. But as the name implies, this design features a long handle, and these were thrown end over end, much like a hunting stick or a thrown club. Now, in both cases, obviously, given that this is an item that will explode, you don't necessarily have to be as precise. It's not a situation where you have to hit somebody in the head with it or in the neck with it every time for the weapon to be uh, successful, though I guess there would be situations where you were trying to throw said grenade into, say, a window or some sort of a, like a, an opening in a tank, etc., well, or like in other cases we've looked at to compel behavior to like drive people away from a particular location. Yeah. I was thinking about Monty Python uh, many months back, and I, of course, thought of the holy hand grenade of Antioch, oh. uh, the, the magical weapon that is used against the, uh, the, the killer rabbit. And, um, and I remember looking around a little bit to, like, to, just to see, was there anything in use during the general historic uh, range that we're talking about here that would have been like a, a grenade? And uh, as I recall, there wasn't really. So I guess there is maybe a potential lag. Uh, there's this kind of gap uh, between the high age of stone throwing and stick throwing as a viable weapon and then the emergence of explosives, which kind of reignites uh, the, the, the need to be able to, to throw precisely, or at least with some degree of precision. You don't want to throw a, a hand grenade imprecisely. Uh, but we certainly see with hand grenades, the, like the, the need for individuals to throw these things becomes all the more important. I mean, um, you look at images of, of, say, modern soldiers training to throw hand grenades, and there's a, a definite like uh, uh, form to how you do it. Uh, you know, like there's a definite training in place. So uh, precise uh, throwing of handheld objects uh, remains a seemingly important part of, of the modern military scenario. You know, I didn't plan it like this, but it's interesting how this series began as us uh, wanting to look at uh, examples of non-human animals throwing. And uh, and ultimately, the main thing that I'm taking away from it is is the special role of throwing in in the development of human culture and human cognition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was surprised by it as well, because, yeah, it was it, we, we started off with the octopus. And now here we are talking about soldiers with grenades. We have to keep the grenades away from the, the octopuses, by the way. Yes. Oh, uh, I should also point out, I, I didn't even get into the use of, of sharpened throwing uh, weapons, but obviously that's a, a huge part of weapon culture throughout history as well. Uh, I don't know. I guess it felt like one step uh, manufacturing or materially away from just throwing a stick or throwing a rock. So I didn't get into that, but obviously there's a lot one could additionally discuss involving hand-thrown axes, hand-thrown darts and uh, knives and so forth. So I guess different aerodynamic uh, properties come into play with at least some of those weapon designs. All right, we're going to go ahead and end it there, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there. If you have uh, thoughts, uh, feedback, uh, experience uh, on anything we've discussed here in this episode or the previous episodes regarding uh, 
animals throwing things, humans throwing things, um, the, 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 the role that, uh, that, that uh, being able to throw something uh, may have in the development of language, uh, and also just uh, the, the various uh, uh, weapons cultures, martial arts that have involved hand-thrown objects. If you have anything to add about any of that, uh, please write in. We would love to hear from you. Just a reminder that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast with core episodes publishing on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Mondays, we do a listener mail, and that's that's where you can write in, and we'll uh, you know, discuss uh, some of the mail that comes in. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode, and then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a strange film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to share something interesting, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.